0: This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder.
1: Object to the test!
0: This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. I go through a ton of reading and research every day. Uh, and on Saturday mornings, I send out a free email newsletter with the five things that I found during the week that were the most valuable to me. It can be a link, it can be a chart, it can be a quote, um, but I keep it brief and it's just the stuff I found was the most valuable. So if this is something that you'd like to receive, just go to thefelderreport.com, you can sign up right there on the home page, and you'll be good to go. My guest for this episode is Meb Faber. And you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who's done more recently to educate and inform individual investors about the fundamentals of effective investing. Over the past decade or longer, through books like uh, Global Asset Allocation, Meb's taken key concepts which Wall Street has suggested for years are too complex for individuals to understand, let alone implement, and made them easily accessible for almost anyone to quickly absorb. Uh, In this conversation, Meb discusses why passive investing as we know it is not nearly as as efficient as most people believe, how owning just one fund allows them to be far more effectively diversified than investors who own dozens, and why the investment industry as we know it today is in terminal decline, and how investors and finance professionals alike should position themselves to take advantage of its evolution. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Meb Faber.
1: Wonder why fund managers can't beat the S and P 500? Because they're sheep,
0: and sheep get slaughtered. Hey, Meb. welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super glad to have you. It's uh, I've been reading your stuff for a super long time, and I'm I'm just really glad to have the chance to introduce you to my audience and and a lot of your you know concepts and things that you've been writing about. You know, I was looking at. Um, your, your, your bio a little bit, but just to kind of prep for this. And I noticed you have a degree in engineering science and biology. Was that stuff you were just kind of interested in studying or were you kind of initially planning on going into a career in that field?
1: No, I I wanted to study aerospace and I started out aerospace engineering where I came from a family of, uh, aerospace engineers, my, my old man and brother, where Lockheed and Northrop guys and uh got to college and realized very quickly that uh wanting to become an astronaut was not the same thing as aerospace engineering, way more math, statics, dynamics. I said this is this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> so uh you know kind of fumbled around for a year or two. Eventually I remember uh reading Watson's recombinant DNA. Uh, I, was, I was living in Boulder doing summer school at uh C U. And uh, fell in love with biology and all things genetics, and that uh, kicked off a path down that route. and uh, you know, as, as careers go, winding and uh, meandering, uh, that's probably more my hobby these days than my career, which is in investing in finance, but uh, f- certainly fell in love with uh, all things biology and, uh, and genetics.
0: So, you know, biology is, it's, I, I guess there's, you know, I, I could see the kind of engineering background in a lot of the stuff you write that, I mean, you know, a lot of the quantitative things and stuff you can, you can really tell it's kind of comes from an engineering, um, background. But the biology, what, what is there, is there kind of an overlap in between biology and investing that, that you see or anything that, uh, you've been able to apply from your biology, uh, you know, interests and study? Oh, yeah.
1: I imagine I could come up with all sorts of uh, theories about natural selection and everything else. It's always like, you know, all these articles, there's like, you know, investing is like sailing or investing is like poker. You know, it's like you could could probably come up with some analogies, but, um, you know, in general, it's there's a lot of uh, parallels, I think, on capitalism, maybe uh, as as a broad market force and the free market. Uh, versus kind of how things work in the natural world uh, of survival and, and business models and ideas. And that uh, plays out in all sorts of different ways through uh, investing um, in broad markets and in individual securities. I, there, there's probably a great deal. We could get pretty deep quick. I mean, we're five minutes in and, and we're already uh, getting into some pretty deep topics. But uh, I think there's probably a lot. Um in in the way that you think about survival, you know, whether it's one company, if you look back in the ranks of companies in history, you know, it's, it's pretty hard to to simply survive in markets. Uh, You know, the biggest compliment we give people in the investing world is not returns or anything else. It's simply like, did they survive? And it's, you mentioned the writing and I, and I, and I laugh because it's, it's, it's like saying doctors have good handwriting, engineer being a good writer. I look back and, and, you know, haven't been writing since pre-crisis and uh, it sort of cringed certainly at, at my writing Um, very, very quantitative in nature, but you look back at some of the articles from 10, 12 years ago and Half the links don't link to anything, half the companies don't exist anymore, half of the money managers are long gone. Uh, so I, I think this concept of, of simply staying in the game and surviving, which I think there's a lot of parallels to natural selection, uh, you know, as well in, in, uh, in genetics, I, I think is, is probably a pretty, pretty accurate representation
0: yeah i mean you you write about um the values of diversification a lot, and not just diversification across you know securities but across different asset classes across different strategies even i mean you take diversification kind of to a to a, an area most places don't pe- most investors don't even think about um but i mean i think that's that to me just is is a lesson you know the biodiversity and those types of things are really what make um you know ecosystems you know more um, yeah, I guess resilient uh, and those types of things, and so I'm, mean, I, I, just you know that kind of just comes. to My, what was that? I guess, um, that really, I guess, turned you on to investing. If, if you know, you were kind of studying, you know, studying engineering and biology and whatnot. I mean, what was it that that kind of really caught your attention about it and and really inspired you to kind of move in that direction?
1: You know, I mean, I, I grew up uh, during the romping, stomping bull market. You know, um, I'm sure much, much as you did, 80s, 90s time of of Michael J. Fox's Alex Keaton, you know, um, exactly. for the, for the old crowd listening, the gray hairs and no hairs listening, younger people have no idea what I'm talking about, but, uh, you know, it was always curiosity I as I think a curious child in general loved, um, all sorts of different things, but, but investing was always, um, a hobby, you know, I mean, through high school and college and, uh, thereafter and, and like most, uh, learn by making all the mistakes and doing all the dumb stuff, thankfully, while I was young and didn't have a whole lot of money. But, you know, the progression of, I think, making a lot of those mistakes, living through my favorite bubble, you know, the late 90s internet bubble uh, was, was just getting out of university and, uh, and making all the mistakes is what eventually pushed me down the path of being a quant. You know, which is what I consider myself now, and and kind of quant light, just meaning that there's rules and everything we do is rules based. But uh, but you know, starting out with somewhat of a, um, I mean, and we have a, I have a postcard when my father passed away years ago. We found that uh, was was written to him about you know talking about investing, you know, and thinking we should buy some shares of Disney in Anheuser-Busch, which was kind of hilarious. Uh, and we, had, we eventually look back at how my picks would have done. And, and I would have been much better off foregoing an entire career in investing and investing and just investing in this, a couple of stocks and going away uh, and, and not focusing on it, which is, you know, uh, ironic and not so much in many ways. But anyway, um, you know, it's but, but like most young people, I think it was it was a meandering, bumbling path that was not necessarily uh, totally uh, planned out as a as a young as a young fellow.
0: Yeah, I mean, sure, I, I studied English in in Cosby, you know, <laughs> but I I, I I gravitated to investing because it was something that was I was always interested in, and, and it was the kind of the the roaring '90s at the time in the late '90s. But um, so. Where did you, I mean, I guess you graduated from college. Where did you get your start in in the world of finance? Um, you know, was it at a, an investing firm, a broker dealer? Where, where, where
1: yeah, so there was, the year was 2000. And my brother who had gone through grad school, PhD program said, you know, maybe you want to take a year off or two, uh, make some money before you go back into this. Because in life sciences in particular, you know, PhD can take four, five, six, seven years. I said, that's a great idea, particularly because all my friends have moved West. Uh, it was the gold rush times were booming in San Francisco in the late nineties. It's hard to, you know, I mean, I guess this cycle is probably pretty similar. Uh, but it feels like the late nineties one was much more fun than this one. Um, a bubble. Uh, anyway, so everyone was moving to San Francisco. I had had the opportunity to work for, um, kind of combine my two passions at the time. I mean, I was still fully on the path of, of going down uh, biotech. And so I had the opportunity to work at a broker-dealer that managed a biotech mutual fund uh, in Washington, D.C. It was actually in, in Maryland uh, that allowed me to go to school at night at Hopkins. Uh, so it was really a perfect setup. Loved it you know, again, this was in 2001. So at a period where really the ending of the bubble and, and many uh, characterize that bubble as the internet bubble, which, which took down a lot of market cap weighted securities. And there's some similarities and rhymes with today, but a lot of people also forget that it was very much a biotech bubble as well. Uh, this was when the Human Genome was being sequenced for the first time, both with uh, the U.S. government as well as Solero Genomics, Craig Venter's company, a lot of optimism and excitement about genomics in general. So, I was right at the intersection, man, uh, you know, undergrad degree, going to grad school in biotech, interested in investing, I used to go all walk down to all the FDA drug approval meetings in my spare time, and uh, so anyway, but got to see that implosion, and then thereafter, you know, decided I wanted to start gravitating more and more towards investing. Going to take maybe another year off before finishing grad school. Uh, you know, one year became two, two became three. I was out in San Francisco, uh, a brief stint in Lake Tahoe, where I tell my resume set. The resume says I was working for a quant shop, but I think it was probably better characterized as, as ski bum, but 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 quant by day, ski uh, on the slopes by 1 p.m. Uh, and then moved down to SoCal. And, uh, and started Cambria in uh, 2006 and, uh, been here ever since.
0: Yeah. So, you know, it's funny that you mentioned the, the human genome stuff. I, 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 so I guess I sort of forgot about that. I was at a uh, I co-founded a hedge fund in the late '90s, and and one of the reasons I left was because we were supposed to have a value bent, and uh, we ended up owning stocks like Human Genome Sciences, <laughs> and you know, so we had uh, my my partner and I had some disagreements about the the mandate of the fund. Bill, uh, Bill
1: Hazeltine, the CEO, very charismatic. You know, I, I took a uh, security analysis class in the spring of 2000 at. I went to undergrad at Virginia and it was taught by a hedge fund manager, multi-billion dollar hedge fund manager, former tiger cub, human genome. And then in the final for the project was you were supposed to uh, present a security long or short. And at the beginning of the semester, I had chosen HGSI ticker symbol uh, at the time. And, I think the thing went up like 120% by the time I presented and then back down like, you know, another 80% all within one semester. Uh was learning a lot uh, in, in real time, but that brand, that name definitely brings back uh, memories.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was it was wild times and there's so many names that I, I forgot, but yeah, it brought back that memory. So, t- let's talk about Cambria. What was it that, uh, I guess inspired you to start the firm um and, and and well to start your own firm in the first place and then really to start a firm that specializes specializes in kind of a unique area of the investment business really kind of what what was the inspiration i guess behind it yeah
1: so i mean the the idea in the origins was uh I had a lot of ideas kicking around in my head and you know having spent kind of the formative years of the 2000s developing a lot of these in you know, Cambria has been around for 12 years at this point, so a lot of them uh, have been developed and refined since then. But, you know, the, the base foundation at the time uh, was was really a quantitative approach to markets. And, and in this case was a lot of ideas around trend following. And so we had started the firm, didn't quite know what we wanted to look like when we grew up, knew we had some money management ideas. Uh, my partner was kind of came from a VC transactional law background. Uh, so, complimentary in many ways. And I neither of us had ever started a, a pure asset management business and so, uh, on, the, on the RIA side. And so, we started out with some private funds and separate accounts. Very quickly at the time, you mentioned, started writing and then realized that, uh, you know, the opportunity in offering funds broadly, uh, publicly. And so, we started sub-advising on a fund and then said, hey, we should probably do this on our own. And fast forward now, we have over 12 ETFs. Um, across all sorts of different strategies, the commonality, of course, is they are quantitative or rules based. But uh, quite quite a broad spectrum of ideas, and most of them, uh, you know, tend to fall under this banner of being, like you alluded to, kind of weird, concentrated, and different. But but the origins certainly were were trend following, and and that often, in many ways, still distinguishes us in in a lot of our strategies. But kind of the two pillars. If you had to say what what are they, you know, here it's on one hand it's value, uh, on the other hand it's trend following to investment ideas that you know we didn't invent. They've been around for over a century at this point, back to the time of Charles Dow and uh, Ben Graham, but uh, but but started the firm, started offering some of these ideas uh, with the goal of, of building them out and. You know, fast forward, I think we have well over 30,000 investors at this point. So, uh, there's a few, there's a few crazy people like us in the world, I guess.
0: Well, you know, it's, there was something else that I think you tweeted about recently that made me, you know, think about you starting your firm too, which was, uh, you know, I, I think you said, you know, the traditional advisory business, um, or, traditional kind of money management business is like a terminal short these days. The the industry is just changing so much. So I guess kind of in the context of that idea, um, you know, there's obviously a, a, re, a niche that you found for Cambria that you think is kind of maybe the way forward for um, you know uh, investment companies. Um, you know, yeah, so 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 I guess what do you how, how do you see yourself as being different, and and what do you think is the the reason you know behind a lot of traditional I guess asset management businesses, um, going, you know, falling to the wayside.
1: So there's been a spectacular trend in particularly in the United States over the past five decades. And it's slow and glacial, despite what I think um, a lot, a lot think. And, and that trend is um, kind of resulting in where you find yourselves today, that there's never been a better time to be an investor. And if you're an investor and you want to open a brokerage account, you don't have to pay commissions. Vanguard, for example, has trading where you can invest in ETFs and not pay commissions. Same thing with Robinhood and a, and a bunch of others. You know, go back three decades and, my Lord, how much did it cost to uh, transact in securities? It, was, it was, could be hundreds of dollars. It could be percentage points. Um, so, that's one. On top of that, the cost of actually investing, if you want exposure to, say, I don't know, 20,000 securities around the world, you can essentially get that for free. Uh, where a lot of these market cap weighted funds from Vanguard and others may offer it for, say, five basis points or zero point oh five percent, which is essentially, in all reality, essentially free. Um, so awesome! You have this amazing selection for investors. You can get tax efficient vehicles. You can invest in, you know, the the largest grocery store on the planet. You know, there's tens of thousands of these funds. That's the good news. Um, the bad news is the world is still dominated in Wall Street, and finance is just littered. You just got to be careful with uh, predators, you know, across the board. Some know their predators, and some don't know their predators. But uh, you know, the way we always frame this is, you know, the investing and asset management world. All that matters is your returns after all the costs. So trading fees, management fees, um, taxes, everything, everything that's involved, and of course, with a with a nod towards the risk you took to get there, uh, and that's all that matters. And so, the base case we often say at this point, in day and age, is essentially free. A lot of the asset management world is not prepared for that. The average cost of a mutual fund today in the U.S. is still 1.25%. I did a tweet this past week where I was talking about asset allocation funds around the world. And when you say asset allocation fund, you mean literally they do nothing. That's kind of their charter. They buy a bunch of assets. They sit there you know, around the world. In every country, I think outside the U.S., the average fee is well over 1%, and some it's over 2 and by definition, that's just um, a major cost and drag on future returns. So you don't have to pay anything uh, to invest today, which is an astonishing development, but people still do. And the analogy we give is we say, look, you know, I wish that we could wake up tomorrow and everyone would rush into these low cost funds. Uh, that would be awesome. But I think it's a multi-decade transition where you know the old phrase or adage that science progresses one funeral at a time. I think that's what happens in the asset management world, where you know if you hold an S and P 500 fund that charges you a percent and a half, and your partner dies or your parent dies or grandparent passes that along. No one goes back to paying one and a half percent for an SP fund when the alternative is zero. So they get sold. I wish it would all happen with a huge catalyst tonight, but I think the reality is that it plays out over a generation or two. Sadly, now let me make a huge caveat here because um, a lot of my friends in the asset management world, you know, I have no problem with fees. If you're an amazing manager, if you have special ability, if you're targeting an asset class that no one else targets, like trailer homes in Wichita that's inefficient and you make 20% a year, God bless you. You can charge one and a half, two, three percentage points a year. As long as you're doing that in an inefficient market, I think that's totally fine. There's some of the best hedge funds on Wall Street that can charge 2 and 20 if they're good. The problem is it just creates a uh, it's like a it's like a high jumper, a pole vaulter. It creates a bar that's just that much harder to get over. And that part of everything. It's not just management fees, but it's also taxes and everything else wrapped into it. So um the long-winded conversation is Vanguard announced this this past week. You can go set up a digital account and all in, including fund costs, is zero point two percent. Uh and they'll automatically rebalance, they'll be tax efficient, all that good stuff. And That's good news for everyone except the people uh, who charge a lot for doing nothing, which in reality they should go out of business. So uh, I'm I'm very positive on the developments. Um, I think this is wonderful, uh, not a bad thing. But uh, I think, you know, that goes back to the old Jeff Bezos quote of, your profit margin is my opportunity. And if you look around and uh, the landscape of 150 industries we have in the U.S., well, what's number one or certainly in the top three is, is asset management as far as profit margins. So a lot of fat a lot of fat to be cut.
0: Yeah, and it's in terms of, you know, not just active, you know, managers, but also I think, um, you know, traditional advisors too. I talked to a lot of advisors and, you know, a lot of guys I think are struggling because not only where we are, you know, in, in, in the cycle. Um, you know, but but also, how do they, you know, uh, try and justify um, an advisory fee for just managing, you know, uh, a portfolio? Um, yeah. So
1: we yeah, we, we often say advisors are worth their weight in gold if they if they do something, and this applies to active manager mutual funds and everything else too. So if you're trying to be future proof, you know, if you're looking around today and you're a young person planning out your career probably don't want to be a truck driver. You know, that, that career, that profession probably won't exist in 10 years. It may exist in five, but it certainly won't exist in 20. And if you look at our world of investing in asset management, you know, do I think human advisors are are safe for our lifetimes? I do, but you better offer some value. And that's the problem is that, you know, you can get a sort of a call center CFP at Schwab and what is it? It's 20 bucks a month. Now there's subscription service. Um, so, do I think advisors offer a ton of value if they do things like yes, absolutely, but they have to be doing estate planning, wills, trusts, insurance asset allocation correctly and thoughtfully. Uh, the behavioral coaching side is, is not to be dismissed. I think educating an entire family on the behavioral side and psychology of investing and dynamics of money within a family is important. All those things, huge value add and the traditional advisor costs 1%. Um, you know, but you have to do it. And the, and the reality is many don't, you know, I, I know plenty of advisors that, uh, you know, they're, they're done by noon and go play golf and they put people in uh, a lot of these traditional warehouses, you know, the all in costs for many of these one and a half, 2%. And that's a huge drag on performance. And and a lot of people, the most brilliant thing wall street has ever done has been to, um, create the percent based asset management fee because no one sees it and it gets skimmed off the top. You know, I guarantee most people listening, if you said, Hey, you got to go deliver instead of it just getting skimmed off every month in your brokerage account if you got to go deliver your asset manager a briefcase with $20,000 every December uh would you do it and most probably wouldn't and forget 20 some maybe $200,000 you know but because you don't see it it's it's a lot easier to pay it um but but it ends up being a a really massive drag on performance
0: yeah. You, you were talking about how, you know, fees have just changed so much. When I got into the business, I worked for a couple of guys at, you know, Bear Stearns who, you know, charged is either, you know, $200 minimum, you know, commission or six cents a trade generally. Yeah. And, you know, all they did was, you know, buy and sell stocks for, you know, accounts and, uh, you know it's it's changed dramatically since then, and you know then twenty years from now it's going to look dramatically different than it does today so I mean that was one of the things I was going to ask you is for you know young people that are looking to get into finance um you know where do you think there's there's a you know good opportunity
1: well you know let's let's channel Charlie Munger and basically one of the most brilliant people on the planet. If, if listeners, if you haven't been to Omaha or more, uh, easier accessible would be the Los Angeles daily journal meeting. And Charlie's no spring chicken. I think he's gotta be in his nineties now. Uh, but, but his mind is still as sharp as, as anyone on the planet. You know, when, when someone asked for his rice, he said, look, you know, I'd, If you're a fisherman, you go where the fish are, where where there's no competition. Um, If there's 500 of of us uh, up in Oregon on a bank when the salmon are running, that's a lot harder than if you're on a river when when there's no one. And so, um, you know, being the 200th analyst that covers Apple, are you really going to have an advantage here, uh, any sort of value add? Probably not. So, you know, in the U.S., that means small cap, micro caps, it could be an area that no one focuses on. Maybe if you're local in Louisiana or somewhere and focusing on local companies, it could be uh, you know the old school Jim Rogers looking around the world. Uh, maybe you're focusing on companies trading in uh, Eastern Africa or you know the sort of emerging markets of Asia or an asset class that no one's really interested in. Who knows what that may be? Maybe you're rolling up Instagram accounts. I mean, it, it, it's just focusing on uh, ideas that. Not everyone is pursuing because, again, you know, kind of going back to what we were talking about, the this Death Star of fee compression in the asset management world— incredible thing for investors, savers, consumers, um, but you know, for the broad-based assets uh, and, and even a company like ourselves, you know, we we try to exist in a little corner of the world that doesn't compete with Vanguard. Uh, because if they, they come into your world and, and compete, you're, you're just going to get, uh, obliterated cause they have way more resources. And the same thing applies to anything. You know, it's any industry, uh, many people are saying, of course, with Amazon and a lot of other industries. So, uh, I think the advice is to, you know, seek out your own path and, and find, you know, and it could also be industries too, that no one's covering or interested in, uh, that, that is not broadly competitive. So compete against, uh, where there's no competition is, is what Charlie would say.
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. And you mentioned your, your little corner of the investment world. I think if we were to kind of maybe broach the subject, some of the, the topics and books that you've written on kind of help people understand what that corner is. You, um, you know, recently uh, did a poll to asking people what's, you know, if you could give one investment book to somebody, um, you know, who's maybe a young person trying to understand how to manage their own money, what would it be? Um, and, you know, th- there's a lot of great investment books that people come up with. Uh, you know, there's tons that, you know, I recommend. Um, but there really aren't a lot of good, you know, books that really cover the basics, the fundamentals. Um, you know, it, your your the one that came to my mind was global asset allocation i think it does i think it's you know if there was one book i could give to investors trying to understand the basics of putting together a diversified portfolio i i can't think of a better recommendation than than that so was that really your inspiration behind um writing that book was hey look there's kind of a void here to be filled why don't i write something about this that's a, a kind of easily approachable
1: First of all, thank you and listeners. Um, one of the big benefits of this book is it's free. So if you go to our website at Cambrian Investments.com, you can download it and a couple of other books for free, ma- mainly because I have a large tiff with Amazon, but not the, not the point of your question. Um, so it was actually in like many of our avenues of research, um, it, w- it was born of a different question, you know, in, in a head scratcher where every day in the media you see. Famous, not so famous investors, prognosticators, gurus, people all across our spectrum, uh, recommending investments. And in many cases, you have them recommending asset allocations. So think about someone says, "Hey, you know, I think you should put sixty percent of your portfolio in U.S. stocks, forty percent in bonds." And you know, maybe Merrill Lynch comes out of the report says, "No, no, we're we're really bullish. We're raising our strategic." stock exposure from 60 to 65. And you've actually had a lot of incredibly famous and successful investors that manage in the trillions, cumulatively, recommend an asset allocation for individuals. So you've had people like David Swinson, who runs the Yale Endowment, and in one of his books recommend an asset allocation. You've had Robert Arnott, You've had Mohamed El-Aryan. Ray Dalio who runs the largest hedge fund in the world. All these guys at some point have said, including Warren Buffett, Here's a recommended asset allocation that I think the broad base of investors should implement. And so my thought at the time is said, okay, well let's let's go actually see how all these are done. Let's do a horse race. Let's see how these portfolios have done over time. Um, kind of compare them and, and see uh, just see what we can tease out of this data and learn. And so we took it back to the 1970s. Uh, early 70s. You can actually take it back to the 1920s if you make some additional assumptions, but there's some main asset classes, about a dozen U.S. stocks, small caps, foreign, emerging, gold, bonds, real estate commodities, all that good stuff. And in the first takeaway, the good news is they all kind of move up into the right, meaning over time, you get paid to own these assets, which makes sense, because why would anyone else buy them over time? But, but you get paid to own, um, you know, the, the big three in my mind are, of course, stocks, which is you're owning businesses. You're um, tagging along with this growth of uh, companies and innovation and other people's hard work and sweat. And then you could also be the bank. So lending, essentially investing in debt, whether it's corporate or sovereign. Um, and you could also uh, real estate, which is kind of, kind of a combination of the first two. You know, you, you invest in land or in, in real estate businesses, whether it's single-family homes or corporations, yada, yada. You invest in all these things, how do they do? And there are some really profound takeaways. Uh, so if you go back to the 1970s, and you look at, I think we did about 15 or 20 portfolios in the book. We had some more in the appendix. I can't remember. And what you found is um, they all did great. And they zigged and zagged all over the place. But the most interesting takeaway was that despite the assets having totally different paths to uh, over, the, over the course of, what is that, five decades now, that they basically almost all ended up in the same place. So you had a spread of, if you exclude the permanent portfolio, which is Harry Brown's old portfolio of a quarter each in, in stocks, gold, bonds and bills, um, you know that, that's, it's not quite fair because it has a ton in, in, in fixed income. But if you look at all the other portfolios, and these are hugely different, some said you should put 90% in stocks, some said less than half, You know, only 25%. Some said you should put 25% in gold, some said zero. Some said you should put a ton in foreign, some zero. So you expect these to have massive differences and impacts on performance, when in reality, they almost all ended up in the same place. And the spread between the best-performing and the worst-performing asset allocation uh, was under two basis, uh, 200 basis points, two percentage points over time. And if you ex- exclude permanent portfolio, it's, I think, it's under one percent. And this is an interesting takeaway. And I said, Okay, hold on, let's do a thought experiment because this is a bit of a head scratcher. And I, I did not expect this outcome. I said, Everyone else would assume that there'd be massive differences in performance because, because. That the underlying instruments were so different, but you said, okay, let's go back to 1972 and we'll let you pick listeners, your single favorite, the single best performing asset allocation over 50 years. And you take a time machine, how much channeling Michael J. Fox again, different movie, uh, you know, back to the future. You go back to 1970s. I'll let you go back and invest in the single best performing asset allocation. You know, how much How much would you pay for that right or, or time-traveling uh, DeLorean? Well, you'd probably pay a billion dollars because you could start a money management company and invest in the best-performing asset allocation in this book. But uh, the caveat was you have to implement it through the average mutual fund fee of today. So again, we were talking about go back to the 1970s, forget about it. Index funds hadn't even really been invented until the middle part of that decade. Or low cost investing. So the average mutual fund fee today is 1.25%. So you go back to 1972, walk forward to 2019. The problem is just by implementing it with the average mutual fund fee today, so forget the one and a half to two and a half percenters, the average mutual fund fee of today would have taken the best performing asset allocation that you placed in your DeLorean and transformed it almost into as bad as the worst. And that to me is a Super profound. No one else thinks it is. I think it's one of the most profound findings of my entire career, which was just by implementing your asset allocation with the average mutual fund fee of today, not of 1973, you've rendered the entire asset allocation decision totally meaningless. It didn't matter how much you had in gold or stocks or foreign stocks or bonds or real estate. Just by implementing it with a higher, not even a high cost, but an average cost structure made the asset allocation totally meaningless. And now, of course, if you said, no, no, I don't trust myself, I'm uh, I'm I'm jumpy. I chase fads. I panic and crashes, recessions. So I need a higher financial advisor of 2019 at one percent a year. So all around you're at two point two five percent. That takes the best performing asset allocation portfolio in this book. Look ahead for bias and makes it far worse than the worst. And so that trying to let that sink into people and 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 really explain the importance of the headwind and just slow drip of this cost of fees, uh, is really important. So the, anyway, the takeaway is that we, again, going back to full circle of our earlier the conversation for kind of your core exposure for your asset allocation. Um, today you can buy a fund, uh, ETFs, you know, we manage the lowest cost ETF in the in the world allocation category, uh, and add on the fact that many of these funds do short lending and return it to investors. There's many funds out there that are pretty darn close to 0% fees, and in some cases have negative fees uh, because of the short lending revenue. And that's pretty cool. Not only is it free, you're actually getting paid to these funds. Um, why would you ever pay more? Why are there people still paying 1%, 2%, 3% per year? Uh, it makes no sense. Now... The caveat to all this is, is, of course, do I think you can improve upon that? I do. This is just the base case, market calculated. And by the way, the default we always tell people is the global market portfolio. Meaning, if you just went out and bought the world, uh, you end up with about half stocks and half bonds, and of that, about half U.S., half uh, foreign. That gives you a pretty amazing allocation that almost, you know, I think will beat, of professional institutions going forward because you can get it for free. Uh, it's very simple to do that. You could do that with one fund today. You could do it with two, three, four funds, uh, replicate this for, for near free. That becomes the gold star default base case. And then to improve upon that, you know, other things you can do. I think so, certainly. But um, that's a really, really yeah, long-winded answer to your question.
0: Yeah, no, no, it's absolutely it's perfect. I want to get into some of those so other things that we can add on to and and, and really dig into the the Trinity um, portfolio. But for me, I think you nailed it on the head. The two things, the two big takeaways are, you know, fees are probably the biggest mistake investors make um, paying too much in fees. Uh, But the diversification side of it too is is critical because, you know, as you've pointed out, you know, and, and I, as I see all the time, you know, people own Investors maybe own several different, five, six, even seven, eight different US equity mutual funds and think they're diversified. Yeah. Um, And they have like, you know, maybe 80% in US stocks and 20% in in bonds or cash or something and think they're diversified. You wrote a post recently where you talked about how you own essentially all your monies in one fund and, uh, you know, you're vastly more diversified than the average investor. So, um, you know, part of that's through the the geographic diversification, but it's also through these, uh, the different strategies so yeah let's talk a little, a little bit about uh that you know the the benefits of diversification and not just across different asset classes but t- through these different strategies too
1: one of, one of my favorite um we joke often when we say look uh one of the best investment strategies is 2000 years old was written in the talmud where i'm paraphrasing it says like invest a third of your labor into business a third into uh, land, and a third into reserve. So the way I interpret that modern is a third into stocks, bonds, and real estate. That portfolio alone is like impossible to beat. It's, it's such a good portfolio. It's over 2,000 years old. But, but the concept that you hit the nail on the head, um, so many times we see portfolios where people come to us and they say, hey, Bob, what do you think about this? And literally, it's 20, 50, 100, 200 holdings. The average financial advisor, this is a stat, and we can source it. Has been in business for twenty years, owns two hundred funds for his clients. How in God's name could you ever possibly keep up with two hundred funds? And so, um, this concept of false diversification—you know, people think just by sheer number that they have diversification. And your example is incredibly apt, where uh, you own a large cap fund, and a mid cap, and a small cap value, a, a small cap growth, mid cap. Value and growth, and a mid cap or a large cap value and growth. You basically just own one fund, which is the S and P 500. You know, so um, having true diversifiers and having them enough in a way that it really matters. So if someone gets off this and they're like, Matt, Jesse, great podcast. I'm gonna, I, you convince me to buy some gold," and they put one percent in or half percent, that's it's probably not going to do anything. And so having true diversification, the, the best example I give and this, of course, um, drives triggers everyone, so apologies ahead of, ahead of time, is, is most people, particularly in the U.S., consistently uh, invest far too much in, in the U.S. market, where the, the global default that surprises everyone is only half. You know, So the U.S. as a percentage of world market cap is only half. That means by default, the starting point, Is you should put half in foreign stocks, and no one does. Everyone in the US puts 70, 80% on average in the US. And it happens in every country around the world, though. If you're Brazilian, you put all your money in Brazilian stocks. If you're Russian, you put it all in Russian stocks. If you're Italian, uh, Chinese, uh, Japanese, all the way down the list. And this is going back to your concept of diversification. It's a horrible idea. Just like no one would say, hey, should you put all your money in your employer's stock? No, that's a crazy idea, too. Would you ever just put all your money in one one stock? Um, But people, for some reason, think it's fine to do it in just one country. And and the problem is, if you look back, my favorite investing book you mentioned earlier um, is Triumph the Optimist. And it goes back and looks at over 100 years of stock, bond, returns all over the world and you see plenty of times where there's countries that did amazing sure if you could go back 1900 and pick the u.s a hey, pat on the back you picked one of the best outperformers it wasn't the best i think tiny south africa did better um but there were plenty that were worse and in some cases if you happen to live in austria you had basically zero return over the whole period real return after inflation some countries went to zero so this concept of uh, putting too many eggs in one basket, I, th- I think, is really dangerous for your core. And it is not a compensated uh, concentration. So, you know, thinking about how to invest, we always say that the, the d- default is the global market portfolio. Um, but that's uncomfortable for many people. And, uh, you know, we say that's a starting point and think you could actually improve upon that from there. Um, and you mentioned, you know, how I put most of my money. We've been very transparent about. How I invest my own money into one fund, uh, you know, and I think that's far more diversified than you know it owns. Underlying twenty other funds that own twenty thousand plus securities all around the world, not just diversified by asset class—stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate—also uh, by geography, also by economic development. Um, tying back into what we talked about earlier, U.S. is only a quarter of world GDP, and if you go down to population and other metrics, it's actually less. So. Uh, I think it's really important to think long and hard about diversification, uh, not only across geography, locale, investment, but also by um, strategy as well.
0: Well and this gets into you know one of the things you you uh, I guess utilize in the Trinity you know portfolios is you add a value bent. And I, I think it's important to talk of talk about value in terms of you know the uh the disparity between you know valuations here in the United States and overseas. I mean I think GMO has pointed out that you know emerging value is like incredibly attractive relative to US stocks today. But, uh, you know, you, you wrote a piece recently that there's, a, you know, the, the, this disparity is at a 40 year wide, um, you know, between U.S. and overseas. So this home country bias, you know, could be, you know, more dangerous today than it's been in a long time. You know, it's funny.
1: So you and I have lived through a few different cycles and you start to see very similar behavior and reasoning and commentary you know, the names change, the asset classes change, but you start to see the same sort of takeaways where people uh, love to extrapolate the recent past far into the future. So, as an example, you know, we talk a lot about valuations. And and taking a step back, this still a surprise to a lot of investors, you know, where um, one of the amazing amazing, going back 50 years, inventions of our uh, lifetime has been this trend from high fee to low fee. Fantastic for investors. But most people uh, think that the big invention, the revolution that Jack Bogle and others created was, was the index fund. And the challenge of that is, if you ask most investors... Pretty good young people, and you say, you know, hey, you're going to go buy uh, the US stock market through an ETF or mutual fund. And you know, say, you know, you say, how is that, you know, how's that index weighted? And, and most people say, you know, it's based on size. So you invest most in the large companies like Apple, which is correct. Uh, but then you say, you know, size by what measure? You know, and people say, well, you know, the biggest companies so are the ones with the most earnings and revenues. Uh uh-uh. uh. You know, it's it's based purely on. Uh, uh, two variables. It's price of the stock times shares outstanding. And this is a surprise to almost every investor we talk to, where uh, these market cap-based indexes are based purely on price alone. And you have no tether to fundamentals whatsoever. You could theoretically have a trillion-dollar company that has no earnings, could theoretically have no revenue. But it's only based on the price of the stock. And so, the beauty of a market weighted index going back 50 years was that you could manage it with no effort. So, you literally just buy, say, 500 or 1,000 or 3,000 stocks, and you never have to rebalance it again. We're more in corporate actions, of course. But that's the reason it was being able to be delivered for such low cost, which was actually, in the day and age of 2019, you can run almost anything based on, on low cost. But... Not my point. My point is market cap indexing. If you were an alien and you came down to the US, is a very curious way to invest your money. It is the market, it is the broad marketplace. But as an investing strategy, it really makes no sense. Why would you, any other part of our lives of personal finance, would you ever buy something without any regards to value? So you don't go to buy a house and say, I'm going to totally ignore uh, you know, the, the price-to-income ratios or the value of this house relative to how much I could rent it for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? But people do it with investing, and it makes no sense. And let me give you an example. So, going back 100 years, talking about Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, fundamentals are an incredible anchor from which you can decide to make investing decisions. And if you go back over time investing in stocks has been a great proposition over very long periods and we think that uh it's it's one of the best ways to build wealth over time that having been said on long term basis if you look at say p ratios uh if you look at long term 10 year ones on average countries around the world traded about 17 but there's been times when countries trade as low as as 5 there's been times and the us has been there by the way there's been times when they'll trade as high as 45, which is what happened in the U.S. in 1999, when I was uh, at university and watching professors pause their lecture to go check the price of stocks on Yahoo Finance, or I guess it would have been Raging Bull, or uh, look look up the prices of Lucent Technologies and CMGI and Pets.com. Uh, it hit the highest valuation we've ever seen in the United States. Now, the craziness with market cap investing is that you invest regardless of value. So, it, you put just as much money, if not, you actually put more in markets, the more expensive they get, and you put less in markets, the less expensive they get. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So, right now, a lot of people are saying, they heard it earlier, they said, you, know, you put 80% in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, man, but that's the U.S. is a different market. It deserves to be. More expensive. It deserves a valuation premium. It's far outperformed foreign markets, and so that's true. The U.S. over the past 50 years outperformed foreign markets by about percentage point per year, and that doesn't sound like much, but over time that is a massive number. of compounds and gets so much bigger. And we love to tell people, say, okay, well, guess how much of that has come since 2009, and the answer is all of it. All of the outperformance has come since 2009, where you had a scenario where. The U.S. and the rest of the world were trading low, teens, price earnings ratios, March 2009. The difference is the U.S. crept all the way up to a value of around 30. So not as high as it was in the late 90s at 45, but high, traditional standards. The rest of the world hasn't participated, and that's played on stock returns, too. So this tailwind in the U.S. has been a headwind for the rest of the world. But that's created these big alligator jaws where the U.S. is expensive and the rest of the world is cheap. Some of it, the rest of the world is reasonable. So foreign developed is around 20, foreign emerging down around 15, 16. And the really cheap stuff, the cheapest quartile country is down around 12. So you have an opportunity to invest in the rest of the world somewhere between a 50% discount to the US to a 66% discount. Now, um, valuation over time, it plays out over years and decades, not months and quarters. And so if you look at the history of market cap weighting, the problem right now, if you go back to what we we're talking about, if you invested based on market cap weighting, that means you put 50% of your stock portfolio in the U.S. stocks right now, which is one of the most expensive stock markets in the world. Doesn't mean It has to cra- doesn't mean it has to crash, doesn't mean it has to go down 90%, but likelihood is that it's going to be a headwind. We expect, by the way, as did John Bogle before he passed away, uh, as did, you mentioned, GMO, as well as about 12 other places, low single-digit stock returns for the U.S., some say negative like GMO, but you know we think low single digits is, is reasonable. But the rest of the world, the good news is cheap to downright really cheap. I think you can get double digit returns in, in other countries. But the thing is, by market cap weighting, you put half, you put most of your money by I think five to ten times any other country in the U.S. when it's one of the most expensive. And so market cap weighting overweights expensive countries, stocks, sectors over time. And the biggest biggest example. So, you, you mentioned the post where we talk about the biggest valuation spread in 40 years. Well, you go back 40 years ago, it, w- it wasn't the US being more expensive than everything else in the world. The US is cheaper. So, in the 80s, the US was cheap, and the rest of the world was a lot more expensive, in particularly one market, which was Japan. Old people listening to this will remember Japan was the biggest bubble we've ever seen, where it hit a P ratio of almost 100 and was the largest stock market in the world. So, if you're a market cap indexer, You put all your money, not all your money, put most of your money into the most expensive stock market bubble we've ever seen. So again, come full circle. It it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, if you use a common sense standpoint, to use market cap weighting because it exposes you to these huge bubbles. Now, there's many good things it does, and we can go down the list on on what that might be. It forces you to own the big winners, the multi-baggers, the McDonald's, the Walmarts, the Amazons. But because it has no tether to value, if you use any other weighting methodology, it could be equal weight, it could be weight, whether uh, the countries start with the letter A to M or N to Z, whether CEOs wear ties or bow ties or no ties, doesn't matter. Any other methodology should outperform, obviously our, our favorite is valuation, uh, should outperform market cap rating over time but that gives you the opportunity right now to invest in these foreign markets, particularly when most people in the US invest 80% in one of the most st- expensive stock markets in the world, I'm going to pause. You may have fallen asleep at this yeah, point. No, Let's no, your, no. no Are no. you still there? I'm you crashed gonna... your car. You at the gym, falling asleep? No, I'm,
0: I'm letting you let you run with it. It's it's uh, perfect. You know, and, and talking about it, it's just it kind of leads me into the the next topic, which is um, you know, the U.S. stock market is expensive, and um, there was a book. Um, I think it's the Dow Capital. Mark Spitznagel wrote. Um, where he he showed that when you tail hedge, uh, when the U.S. stock market is in its top quartile valuation, um, you can add significant, you know, um, upside, you know, a couple percent to your your returns over time. Um, is that one of the reasons why you started the the tail um, ETF uh, was to kind of allow people uh, an easy way to do that? Because tail hedging for most people is something I think that would make sense to people, but it's not easy to do. Um, so, I mean, was that your inspiration behind it? Was, you know, because of where we're at in, in US stocks and, and how how does the, the tail ETF really work?
1: So as you think, as you go down the list on things that I think people should do and what's important to them, you know, I, th- I think the first step... Like you mentioned, beginning of the podcast was uh, you should start with a diversified portfolio of assets that zig and zag. So to me, that's the global market portfolio and a buy and hold investing approach across those assets is a great way. You can get it for free. Awesome. Tax efficient. Okay, Um, the challenge for a lot of people with buy and hold investing and again, we, we have a value tilt. So, uh, tilt towards companies and countries and sectors that are cheap versus expensive, uh, the same way Warren Buffett or any other value investor would, uh, to avoid these bubbles, like I was mentioning, that that happen over time and distortions. Um, And so, you have this diversified portfolio, and that's done great over time. You get about 5% real after inflation awesome returns, you'll lose a quarter or 30% of your money at some point. And that's the hard part for people. So, de- despite having a diversified portfolio, you cannot find a portfolio that doesn't decline by at least 25% at some point after inflation. So, a lot of people think, by the way, that, that bonds are magically exempt from drawdowns. They say, no, no, if you buy government bonds, you buy T-bills, you never lose any money. But after inflation, you know, you lose 50% at some point uh, if not more. So building a diversified portfolio, a great first step, but the problem that most people have with it is they feel like they're not doing anything. And um, the problem with buy and hold is that often when things are hitting the fan, so think back to the financial crisis, everything happens at the same time. So your portfolio is doing poorly, but guess what? The economy is also in a recession. Companies are going out of business, companies are going bankrupt, real estate is going down, and oh, by the way, you may have just lost your job. So, all of these things happen at the same time. So, theoretically, having a portfolio that's exposed to economic growth does not hedge your life. And so, your life being, hey, what do most Americans have most of their money in? Their house. So, all these things went down at the same time. Um, and so, it's really hard for people to, to stick through a buy-and-hold approach uh, with assets. So, the next step we often talk about is trend following, which we could probably do a whole other podcast about uh, as an investing approach that, as far as I know, any advisors in the country, we have the largest allocation of trend following strategies of anyone, I, any, any institution or professional I know, where we the default we have is half. Um, and trend following, by the way, it means a lot of different things to different people. But the, the the general basis is that it's also not easy to follow because uh, there's times when trend following looks great. So like an 08, 09, uh, there's times it doesn't look great. So many years since, you know, when markets may be going sideways or trend following gets caught whipsawing uh, around, you have an exposure that is also not easy to follow because you may look different than your neighbor who's just uh, making coin. Making hay by uh investing in the u s stock market the past ten years, and so you look different, and that's also hard that's really hard there's There's no bigger uh investing challenge many people think it's greed and fear this is a Warren buffett quote, but uh the hardest one to probably deal with is envy you know when when your neighbors are making a lot of money and you're not, that's probably even more hard to deal with than a than a two thousand and eight sort of crisis. so we put the two and two together. And that's the basis for what I do with all my money. So now now we're getting detail hedging. So um we said that all these things you need to do if you want to get rid of a risk, the first thing you should do is just not take it in the first place. If you're too much stocks, sell some. Get down to your sleeping point where you're comfortable with your stock exposure, diversify, diversify across ge- geographies, strategies, trend following, flaws, value. Once you've done all these things. Um, there's still the case where a lot of people have too much exposure to U.S. stocks. So think uh, a broker at Merrill Lynch. Think anyone who has exposure to U.S. stocks, maybe they own some in their retirement account, and they just can't hedge or can't sell. But they have low-cost basis stock. They've owned forever. They bought Apple at 5 Now it's a trillion-dollar company. They don't want to sell. They'll get killed in taxes. And they say, look, I don't care if I make 8% a year or 9% a year. It's not going to make a difference to me, but it will make a difference if it goes down 25%, 50 80% like stocks have in the past. So, for some people, the same way that buying car insurance, by the way, buying car insurance and buying house insurance is not a good investment for the vast majority of people because nothing, you don't get into next and your house doesn't burn down. So, it's a bad investment from a purely financial standpoint, but it's a good investment from a psychological and emotional well-being, absolutely. Because you could be the one out of 10,000 people whose house burns down. Believe me, I live in California. Mudslides and fires are, are very real uh, occurrence. You could be the person who that dummy was on their phone went through an intersection and T-boned you. Um, you know, maybe you did the same Maybe you weren't paying attention and, and you get into the car. accident. So insurance is the vehicle that... Um, the biggest development evolution in my career... Has been that the statistical best portfolio or investment is not necessarily the correct one. Meaning, from a behavioral standpoint, from a success, from a sleep through it, happiness, stick with it standpoint, having an investment that it increases the odds of compliance and achieving your goals is a worthwhile investment. So, in this case, we launched a terrorist fund, which oddly has been our most popular fund this year, um, that does nothing more than it buys a bunch of puts on the U.S. stock market and pairs it with government bonds. And historically, in the modeling, it's actually had a slightly positive return, but I would not expect it to. It looks somewhat like an inverse S&P fund over time, but the, but the bond... Uh, the income of the bonds which historically was four to six percent which is now two and, and going south quickly, covered the cost of buying puts on the stock market. So for some people it's a wonderful hedge to what they're doing. you know if you go back to Q4 2018, for some people just to see uh, if the market and their portfolio is down one five ten percent to see something that's green uh, is helps them you know and it helps them get through, Helps them to reduce the volatility of the day to day. So uh, I I think it's a fund that you know I own, my company owns. So we mentioned financial advisors are probably four times leveraged the stock market and don't know it. Uh, you know I think it's a it's an investment that it's not one that we say is appropriate for everyone all the time, but could be appropriate for a lot of people uh, to help them out.
0: Is there like a you know, and and I was you oh. know. Looking at because, you know, I've got a friend who bought a, uh, a ton of, you know, blue chip names back in the 70s and just was, you know, pumped. Pushing a bunch of his, you know, extra income into the market at that time. And he still owns all these stocks. And essentially, so everything he has is capital gains. And so, uh, you know, he doesn't want to, you know, take a big tax, you know, hit on, on selling those things, but he wants to reduce exposure. So something like tail makes makes a, a good deal of sense in that situation. Um, is there like a, a recommended kind of, um, I guess, exposure? Uh, you know, say you have ten thousand dollars worth of equity exposure. How much tail should you buy to kind of protect against that? Is there kind of a, a, a range.
1: There's sort of infinite ways that one can think about, um, you know, permutations of investing, and you know, what's the best collateral? How should you do it? I mean, the way we built it was the simplest. And for the nerds out there who want to go play around with the data, CBOE has a lot of um, bond and derivative options indices. You can tease out the data. We we actually spent an entire summer building an options database before realizing it was actually fairly simple, and you could replicate it within (laughs) an afternoon with a with a nice coffee um so uh but we did it which which made me feel comfortable with taking it back a long time the reality was the way that we've designed it it ends up roughly speaking and you obviously can't guarantee it but it looks like a roughly one to negative one correlation with the s&p 500 so in any given month day quarter if the s&p was down 10 percent, we would broadly expect this fund to be up 10 percent. now the, the reason we think it's superior to say a simple futures fund um is that you do get the exposure of the options when volatility rips. So if you do have a tail event where volatility goes from 15 to 50 or hundred, you get the added push of, of the options, but also on the flip side, of course, you know, if you're if you're buying this when volatility is at hundred after the events already happened, right. you're, you're probably uh, going to get the other side of that double-edged sword too. So if you wanted to do it on your own and not outlay a ton of capital, uh, you could certainly do it with your own options, futures, and get get the massive amount of leverage. The way we did it was a little more plain vanilla. It's almost a bond replacement. So, uh, if you have in your portfolio, say a twenty percent allocation to U.S. Treasuries, uh, you could actually replace it with this fund, which would give you a twenty percent allocation to U.S. Treasuries but also an overlay of a bunch of puts. So it's kind of two funds in one. 90% of it, again, is, is in roughly 10-year bonds, uh, which, ironically, have had a fantastic year. Uh, not a lot of people would have predicted bonds having a, for long-term, up 20%, I think, this year. Zeros are up probably 30 or 40. Uh, but crazy, crazy times we live in. Anyway, so we, we expect roughly a one to negative one. So if someone had 10000 and they wanted to try to completely insulate, uh, then it would be a roughly equal weight, Investment, so ten thousand as well. Yeah, but you don't have to completely insulate it. You know, in many ways, you could do five, two, one. Uh, it's, it's really personal preference. Yeah,
0: uh, it makes perfect sense. You know, I, I, I got to, you know, there's a lot of studies that you've looked at, um, and actually, one I got to thank you for because when I was I, I started looking at gold back in like mid 2015, and one of the things that that helped me kind of decide to to make a significant commitment to it was. Um, a study that you did where you showed, you know, when asset classes are down two, three years in a row, uh, negative, uh, you have negative return. I think gold at that point was four years, you know, negative in a row. And and usually it's a sign that, uh, you know, there's there's going to be a turnaround and, and returns going forward are going to be a little bit better than average. Um, is there anything specifically that, you know, in terms of those types of states that you're looking at today that, you know, you, you think people should be aware of?
1: A couple comments. One is... I think it's really important for investors. I'm a quant, so it's a little easier, but I still feel the tug of emotions where you want to come into this whole world being what I call asset class agnostic. And, and the problem with so many investors, is they identify, they say, I'm a gold bugger, I'm a dividend guy. I, I'm, you know, I'm an income investor. And, as we all know from the literature, you know, once you buy something, you have a very different perspective on it, whether it's that bike in your garage or whether it's that stock you bought than before you bought it. Totally different perspective on on investments. And we, we do this thing called the zero budget portfolio, where uh, so many investors come to us again with 20, 50, 100 things. They say, What should I do? And I say, they say, well, What should I do with the stock? Or say it's even gold. What should I do? Should I sell it? Should I keep it? And first of all, I said, well, you shouldn't have to think binary. It doesn't have to be all in or well, all out. But what would you do if you didn't own it? Would you go buy it? I said, no way. I would never buy that now. Or, well, Okay. So for the investor's listening, a great exercise, take out a blank piece of paper and say, what is my ideal allocation? Is it 50% in stocks, 25% in bonds, 25% in real estate ETFs? Whatever it may be, write it down Compare it to your current allocation. And if it's different, there's a problem. And the problem is, you have some sort of emotional attachment to your portfolio, and in many cases, most of them we see are garbage, right? So, um, now this is ignoring taxes, of course, but but first comment is, I think it's important for people to be asset class agnostic. And the problem, the reason value investing works, and by the way, I, I love Cape Ratio, I love valuation metrics. The valuation metric does not matter. You could use long-term dividends. You could use long-term cash flow. You could use price-to-book, price-to. It doesn't matter. In general, when you have a cheap market like Russia, every valuation indicator says the same thing. And by the way, listeners, Russian stock market has been outperforming the U.S. for going on five years now. Uh, but it has few ratios still single digits. Um, when you have an expensive market like the U.S., every single valuation market says uh, indicator says the same thing. You cannot. I challenge you, listeners. I'll buy you a beer if you find one you got to be in Manhattan Beach or when I run across you. But you cannot find a valuation indicator that says the U.S. stock market is cheap. You cannot find one. But it's challenge, again. It's a beer bet. You find one, I'll buy you a beer. Um, because valuation metrics are blunt tools. One may say, hey, it's kind of expensive. One says it's really expensive. But very rarely is the case that says something is super cheap or super expensive. But the dirty secret of valuation is that valuation simply correlates a ton with how much an asset is already down. So if you look to price-earnings ratio, what, what moves in that equation? It's the numerator, price. So if you draw a chart of the 45 countries around the world, and you line up the PE ratio and you do a regression against drawdown. Not surprisingly, the expensive countries are all trading near all time highs, and the cheap countries are already down 40, 60, 80%. And so when you're investing in cheap PE ratios, it's simply because that market's already gone down a ton. Look at Russia, look at Greece, look at half of Eastern Europe. So, there's a very high correlation with simply losses and valuation and then future returns. So, as an example, we did an old study, took the French Fama data back in the 1920s. Look at what happened when you bought sectors or industries that were down three, four, five years in a row. This was actually in our first book, The Ivy Portfolio. We looked at what happened in broad asset classes, so U.S. stocks, foreign stocks, gold, Bonds when they were down multiple years in a row. And I think when you look at three years in a row, it had only happened when we published the book like six times. Um, and the future two, three year turns are really strong. Massive outperformance. Out but the problem is nobody wants to own something when it's down 40, 60, 80%. But that's when they want to sell. And uh, uh, buddy Mark Yusko says there's there's no other industry in the world where. When things in the store go on sale, investing, everyone runs out of the store. It's crazy when you should be doing the opposite. So, uh, we did a fun study that looked at also what happens when you buy sectors, industries, countries when they're down 60, 80%. And the future returns were great. And so, we, we, de- we did a couple old fun <laughs> posts where the first one was a few years ago, we said why well, you should ask for coal stocks in your stocking this year for, for a holiday, it's Christmas. Cold stocks were down like 80%, down like five years in a row or something. And usually, by the time an industry is completely hated and no one wants it, it's, it's a good opportunity. So, if you look around the world today, oddly enough, there's still quite a few cheap countries. I think the cheapest bucket, I, you know, you mentioned massive valuation spread. It's an unbelievable opportunity to diversify away from the U.S. towards foreign markets, towards the really cheap foreign markets. Um and uh that gives you it's not just emerging. If it, if you had to pick one, it would be emerging markets. But the cheapest countries are about half in developed as well. You gotta diversify. I guarantee you, if you take your takeaway from this podcast is to go put all your money in Turkey, uh I will I will scold you. That is absolutely not what I said. You still gotta diversify because some keep going down and, and some some will have great returns, but on average that value bucket absolutely outperforms the US. And then within the US, you have some pockets. I think the agriculture stocks have been just a dumpster fire for going on five years, seven years now. Going into this year, certainly I think a lot of the precious metals, gold miners, uh have been very unpopular, unpopular, but they're having a, a pretty monster year. Um, so I think I think it's good uh territory to, to do some digging. I think the challenge for a lot of people, you know, we joke there's still a fair amount of risk, the old the old quote what do you call something down 90%, something down 80%, then goes down another 50%. So just because it's down 80% doesn't mean it's going to you know, keep going up. But on average, that, that's been good places to look, uh, buying where there's blood in the streets. And if you pair that with valuation thoughtfulness, I think that's a really powerful combo. And my favorite, of course, is when something's cheap and entering an uptrend. Uh, so you have the fundamental anchor of it being cheap through whatever value metric you want to use, and then once you can use any sort of quantitative variable, 200-day moving average, anything simple like that, uh, to define it as an uptrend, that, that's the best confluence of possible outcomes. And, and it's true in the U.S. stock market, too, by the way. Um, if you divide the U.S. stock market into quadrants for its full history, cheap, expensive, uptrend, downtrend, not surprisingly, the worst is expensive, downtrend, and the best is cheap, uptrend. Uh, but the, the, the second best is expensive uptrend, which is where we are now, but that, that flips to being the worst, probably, uh, if, and when you ever enter a downtrend. So, um, it's a simple answer to still, there's always opportunity somewhere. Uh, I think uh, if, if I had to choose, and this is what I do with my son's, uh, retirement, or excuse me, retirement college account, as well as my retirement account, because I can't invest in our own funds. Uh, they're both just dollar uh, cost average into foreign and emerging market stocks.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there's just, uh, you know, so many different opportunities out there that people are just focusing, you know, on an SP 500 or, or missing out on. And I, I totally agree with you. I think the, the industry is, is moving towards this low cost thing. It's really cool to see, but I, I think the next stage of it is people moving more towards a lot of these strategies that you're talking about and that you're implementing in the funds. So, uh, where can people find out more about Cambria and, and, and follow you and your writing?
1: All right, so you got my day job, which would be dot Investments.com or the funds at CambriaFunds.com. You can go find all of our ETFs. Um, you can find my old blog at MebFaber.com, which is mostly podcasts these days, like yourself. I uh, love this medium. We could go on for hours. Uh, you can watch me pick fights on Twitter. And again, uh, that's a, I'm at Meb I'm Favor. And if you uh, want to download our books, we got like three or four for free uh, at uh, camerainvestments.com. Download them. Let me know what you think. I would love to hear uh, some feedback.
0: Yeah, and I highly recommend people check out the books. They're, I think they're phenomenal, and, and they really do fill a void uh, for people just trying to understand a lot of these uh, these concepts that are critical to succeeding. So, Meb, thank you so much for taking the time, man. This was Awesome.
1: It's been a blast. Thanks for having me.
0: And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high.
1: in the abyss there's nothing staring back at him at
0: that moment man finds his character and that is what keeps him out of the abyss